Our scripture reading this morning, uh, just prior to our sermon passage, is taken from 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 24. You'll remember that the, uh, the Johannine uh, epistles, the, the, the letters of John, are found just a, a, a few chapters before the book of Revelation. So if you're uh, looking around, kind of fumbling through your Bibles, just go to Revelation and then sort of start working your way systematically toward the front of your Bibles and you'll find 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 24 is our scripture reading. And then our sermon passage is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 to 31. So picking up where we left off last week and finishing off chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. But again, our scripture reading is 1 John 3, 1 to 24. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living and true God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now turning to 2 Samuel chapter 12, 
beginning reading at verse 24 through the end of the chapter. And then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. This ends the reading of God's most holy and inspired, infallible and inerrant word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are grateful for your word and we pray that the author of the word, the Holy Spirit, would both cause your word to dwell in our minds richly, but also that he would give us understanding as to his authorial intent. Lord, we admit that so often we import our own experiences and our own understanding into your word, and very frequently we fill it with meaning of our own making. But we pray, Lord, that you would help us not to do that, We do pray that we would relate to your word, but we pray that you would help us to relate by your spirit and that he would show us what he meant as his word was written. We're thankful that your word reveals who you are. We're thankful for the portions of your word we've heard this morning. Please help us to understand. Guide us, O Lord. Be glorified through the preaching and the hearing of your word. We pray, dear Lord, that you would build us up into the household of God as your word is now preached. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now, last week's passage was a very difficult one. In part, at least, because it told us about the death of David's son. It showed us that David's son... This first son between David and Bathsheba, that his death had come about as a consequence of David's sins. And yet, last week's passage was also full of hope because it showed us David's trust in the covenant that God has made with his people. It was because of that covenant that God had made with his people that God forgave David. It's because of the covenant that God granted David the ability to repent of his sins and turn to the Lord once again in faith. And God's covenant with his people gave David hope that David would see his son again. And God's covenant faithfulness is on full display once again in our passage this morning. Now, as we're going to see in the next few chapters, 
As soon as this passage is over, we get to chapter 13. It's going to start looking like the wheels are coming off of the dynasty that God was making of David's house. Beginning in chapter 13, everything in David's house starts falling apart. And we're not talking about the king's mansion here. Beginning in chapter 13, we get a sense, a a reminiscent sense of the after effects of Adam's and Eve's first sin when Cain rose up against Abel and murdered him. One of David's sons rises up against another of David's son, this son's half-brother, and murders him, and then later succeeds for a time at least in taking the throne from David. A descendant of Saul curses David. Joab, David's most trusted general, rebukes David. Sheba of the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's tribe, starts a rebellion against David. And all of Israel, not including the southern tribe of Judah, all of Israel follows him. In the midst of all of this turmoil, perhaps it was the case, we can hope, as we go through all of those passages in the future, in the coming weeks, In the midst of all of this turmoil, turmoil, perhaps David took comfort in the fact that upon the birth of his second son to his wife, wife Bathsheba, whom he named Solomon, which means peace, God had sent Nathan to tell David that he, that is God, loved Solomon. And so David calls his son, perhaps gives him the nickname Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. As we work our way through the passage today, I would ask you to think about this, to consider this thought. God sent His only begotten and beloved Son so that all who belong to Him would know that we are the beloved of the Lord. God sent His only begotten and beloved Son so that all who belong to Him would know that we are the beloved of the Lord. The sermon has three parts. The first part is peace and love. The second, the victor's crown. And the third, beloved children. Again, peace and love. The victor's crown. And beloved children. We'll begin where we always do with point number one, peace and love. For the first time since chapter 11, verse 3, the author of 2 Samuel uses the name Bathsheba. And in those intervening, intervening verses, he refers to her exclusively as Uriah's wife. He never uses her name from chapter 11, 3 on. And it's possibly to remind the reader that what David has done is unlawful. David taking Bathsheba to be his wife is something that God looks down upon and frowns upon. And we read at the end of chapter 11 that that this was displeasing to the Lord. But it also, I think, depersonalizes Bathsheba, which, it's my personal view, reflects David's view of her. He has not treated her up to this point as a person. He's treated her as a subject. He's treated her as property. But now the punishment uh, for David's Crimes having been meted out, the author recognizes Bathsheba as David's wife and describes David as comforting her, something that he did not do for her after the death of her husband. His behavior toward her at the end of chapter 11 is transactional, 
It's cold. It's distant. He sends for her. He brings her to his house. There's no sense of any sort of warmth toward her. Here, in Bathsheba's second round of deep sorrow, David shows tenderness to her. And so this stands out in stark contrast to the way that he treated her before. And once again, because of this consolation, Bathsheba becomes pregnant with child. Now, there might have been some anxiety that's associated with this pregnancy, whether this son would live or not, undoubtedly. And mothers, you understand this if if you've lost a child in childbirth or shortly thereafter, that when the next child comes along, there's anxiety, there's worry. But trusting in God's covenant love, David named their son, the second son, Solomon, which means peace. It has the same root word as shalom. David seems to understand that there was now peace between God and himself, as one author has put it. David knew that before he had been under God's displeasure for his sins. He experienced profound guilt when he was confronted by Nathan and when his sins were exposed. But now he experiences the freedom that comes from knowing that his sins have been forgiven and put away. And so he names his son peace. And Solomon, we can say, is a type of Christ. He is the Prince of Peace, not with the capital letters there. Nothing to take away from the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace. But Solomon, in so many ways, as was with his father, is a forerunner, a foreshadowing, a type of Christ. He's a great king in many, many respects. He reigns for 40 years, which is a sign of God's favor on him. The kingdoms of Israel and Judah remain united under his rule, which even David could not say, as we'll see in a few chapters. He holds it all together. Solomon builds God's temple in Jerusalem. He amasses great wealth from all of the people who have been coming to him from the surrounding nations who are seeking his wisdom. And yet, we will see, or perhaps you read 1 Kings, you will see, this son of David, whose name means peace, is not the son of David, not the prince of peace, who brings true and lasting peace. And so, as the biblical writers are always faithful to do, we get a warts and all picture of Solomon in 1 Kings. Solomon following in the footsteps of his father, but surpassing his father, marries many, many women. He makes David's polygamy look quaint by comparison. Solomon not only allows idols to be built, but he has them built near Jerusalem as a favor to his foreign wives. And these idols were worshipped openly by his wives and others. And as a result of this sin, God told Solomon that he would tear his kingdom away, but not from Solomon, from Solomon's son, who would accede to the throne later on. Though Solomon was the beloved of the Lord, he would prove not to be the beloved of the Lord. He would not only be David's, but Solomon's greater son. Ultimately, it is only through It is only God through his only begotten son who can bring peace. And he brings peace between himself and those whom he calls his beloved. That brings us to the second part of the sermon, the victor's crown. Verses 26 to 31 close out the story of the battle against the Ammonites. You remember them? 
we've sort of forgotten about them in the intervening passage with all of the terrible things that were going on with David. This battle was still being waged when David remained behind in Jerusalem instead of being out on the front lines with his men. If only David had gone to the front lines. And so Joab, who has been leading the battle, he sends word to David that the city of Rabbah, the capital city of the Ammonites, was about to fall. And he tells David that he needs to get there fast to take the city or it's going to be called by Joab's name instead of David's. David gathered together a group of soldiers in Jerusalem. They marched to Rabbah. And verse 29 says that they fought against it and they took it. Joab had had gotten them right on the precipice of defeat, the Ammonites, and David clinches the deal. In addition to taking the city, they took the crown from off the head of the king of the Ammonites, who here is not named. He is not even mentioned by name here. Now, this crown must have been a thing to behold. Verse 30 says that the crown was a talent of gold. That is a unit of weight, not, you know, something that would get you on American Idol. And you can read in your footnotes that a talent is equal to about 75 pounds. A 75-pound gold crown is taken from the king of the Ammonites and placed on David's Head. And in this gold crown was a precious stone, and the crown was placed on David's head. And we read in verse 30 that David brought out a huge amount of spoil from the city. Now, one commentator writes that the weight of the gold and the crown jewel were indicative of the splendor of Ammon's throne. And chapter 12 concludes by saying that David put the Ammonite people into forced labor. They had been a pernicious, troublesome enemy of, uh, of Israel. And so they were not granted leniency the way that the Armenians were. The recent turmoil in David's life, his personal life, it had been brought to resolution. And the turmoil between the Ammonites and Israel has now concluded. And you almost wish that 2 Samuel would end right here at the end of chapter 12. With David, his house, his kingdom at peace. Alas, it cannot be. 2 Samuel goes on for another 12 chapters. This is history, not a fairy tale. 2 Samuel, just like 1 Samuel, just like the historical books of the Bible, they are a chronicle of life in a fallen world, and as such, we can relate to it. It rings true to us, doesn't it? We might not have had identical experiences to those Uh, the people mentioned in these chapters, these passages, but we can relate because we too live in a fallen world. We can sniff out a fairy tale when we read it. We've already mentioned it, so there's no need to rehearse again the terrible events that take place beginning in the very next chapter. Our duty is to remember God's goodness to his people, including ourselves, when our lives are full of hardship. Our duty is to be just as honest about our own sins as God's word is about his people's sins. And so when we read about David, sure, hopefully we can say, there but for the grace of God go I... But we can also look at the sins of David and say, wow, I'm not that different. 
from what he's done. The honesty of God's word should drive us to be honest in our appraisals of ourselves. We also need to remind ourselves ourselves that the reason that David could step back into battle as king, the reason that he could take the capital city of the Ammonites is because God made him able to. God was willing to give David victory. David didn't deserve it. He deserved to be roundly defeated in battle. We need to remember that David brought out the spoils of the city and wore the crown of the Ammonite king, not because of how much he loved the Lord, but because of how much the Lord loved David, despite his terrible sins. David was the beloved of the Lord even before Solomon. And you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are beloved of the Lord as well. And that brings us to our third and final part of the sermon. Beloved children. I think it's worth taking a few moments before we conclude to reflect on what it means to be the Lord's beloved, to be loved by Him. In our scripture reading from 1 John chapter 3, John writes in verses 1 and 2, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But, what, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And one aspect of being loved by God, of being the beloved of the Lord, the one that John highlights in this passage in 1 John 3, is the privilege of becoming God's children. It's not an automatic thing when you are born. You're automatically a child of God. It's a privilege. John tells his readers two times that they are children of God. First in verse 1 and then again in verse 2. The love of God is so great that we have been given the privilege of being called the children of God. And we are children now. That's how John phrases it. In other words, John elaborates in verse 2, our adoption as God's children is not something that will happen at some point in the future. But it's something that has already happened when the person first believes in Jesus Christ. Upon your regeneration and faith, you are adopted as a child of the God most, God most High. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When you are born again by the Holy Spirit, you are adopted as God's child. It is an immediate benefit of salvation, of union with Christ. But what does it mean to be adopted by God the Father? Well, our shorter catechism puts it this way. Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. The larger catechism expands on this a bit, saying that believers are admitted to all of the liberties and privileges of the sons of God, made heirs of all of the promises, and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. And one of the benefits of adoption is that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Paul, as Paul puts it in Romans 8.15, by whom you cry, Abba, Father. What's more, Paul writes in verses 16 and 17 of that passage, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God with, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
To have God as our Father means that we can cry out to Him as Father. Now that might seem a little bit obvious, but it's not uncommon for Christians to forget this. We can forget that we're children of the Most High God. We can forget that we're children of God the Father. But God is our Heavenly Father. And He loves us like no earthly father can love His child. God the Father has lavished His love upon us. And He did so while we were still enemies of His, while we still hated Him. He poured out his love on us and he adopted us as his children. And your being adopted by God didn't happen as a result of him looking down at you and seeing how lovely you were. So that he just had to have you like some uh, person visiting a, 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 a dog uh, store and seeing a puppy that they just have to have. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 says, In love he predestined, he predestined us for adoption to his, himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So it wasn't that God saw you down here on earth and decided that he had to have you. You're just so cute. And he needed you as part of his collection. He predestined you for adoption. And verse 4 of Ephesians 1 says that he predestined you, he chose you before the foundation of the world. But neither was it out of ignorance of your sinfulness that God predestined you for adoption. When God chose us before the foundations of the world, lovingly predestining us to become his sons and daughters, he knew exactly what he was getting himself into. He knew exactly the types of sins. He knew exactly what sins you and I would commit in our lives. He fully knew the extent of the sinfulness of those he chose. And he was perfectly free to let us all perish in the fiery pit of hell forever. But instead, despite our future rebellion against him, he set his love upon us and marked us for adoption. And so, brothers and sisters, in one sense, before we were created in the womb, we were beloved of the Lord. Now, you may not have David as your father, like Solomon did. You may not be able to claim any kind of Jewish ancestry that would take you back to the twelve tribes but even so God has made an everlasting covenant and he has sealed this covenant with the blood of his only begotten and beloved son Jesus Christ his life and his death and his resurrection is the assurance that you are the beloved son or daughter of God he loved you enough to send his son to save you so that you could be the sons and daughters of the Most High God. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. That is the gospel. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are truly thankful to you, dear Lord, for the salvation that you have given to us in Christ Jesus. We're thankful, Lord, for your word. For all of it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. The pictures that we get, warts and all, of, of your Old Testament saints and your New Testament saints. Lord, we are thankful for the forgiveness that you gave to David. That you forgave him of his heinous sins. That you washed him clean with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful that you gave to him and Bathsheba the gift of a second son. 
Solomon, Jedediah, beloved of the Lord. But we are thankful, dear Lord, that we who call upon the name of Jesus Christ, we too are the beloved of the Lord. We pray, dear Lord, that you would cause us to rejoice in this truth, to cling to it, to hold it dear. We pray, dear Lord, that you would cause us by your spirit to walk with you all of our days, never straying, never wandering, trusting wholly in you. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.